Hello, friends. This is Darren Hayes of PigskinDispatch.com. Before we take you to your favorite Sports History Network show, just want to tell you a little bit about some merch that you can pick up that represents your favorite SHN podcast. So far, there's t-shirts, coffee mugs, and even books from some of the authors that do podcasts right here on SHN. Who could buy something better than that than have the history right from the, the gentleman that you hear talking about it? But we also are adding things each and every day. And where's that store, may you ask? Well, it's at SportsHistoryNetwork.com. Up at the top, there is the SHN. HN merch button. Click on that. It'll take you right to the store and you can be representing your favorite podcast and show the world that, hey, on the swag that I'm using, it's the headquarters of sports yesteryear, Sports History Network, and my favorite podcaster, the Sports History Network store. Shop there today. The stick argument has been called. It's the stick of Marty McSorley. Welcome to Marty's Illegal Stick, a hockey history podcast with your host, Scott Kinville. Let's hop on that Zamboni time machine and go back in time to look at hockey's glorious history. And what's up, hockey fans? And welcome to episode number 87 of Marty's Illegal Stick, a hockey history podcast. Recording here on Wednesday, July 27th, 2022. We have got a very exciting show lined up for you today. This is a... I always love to talk about the old-time hockey, and we're going to go back over 100 years to talk about our topic today, and this is, this is just going to be great. Before I bring our guest in, though, I want to bring in my co-host, my compadre, my sidekick, if you will, Mr. Dave Save warner How are you? How are you doing? Good. Since you had a birthday yesterday, it's uh, you can still remember 100 years back, right? The sort history? of. Get in there. Of. Yeah. We're getting there. And it was two days ago. So. Yeah, oh, two days ago. All right. The days all blend together for me. Listen, I don't count birthdays anymore. Oh, I stopped okay. counting them. That's I it. I know. Then that, that's, that's telling. <laughs> I can't even give them to my daughter anymore, so I had to give them to her rabbits. Oh, you know, okay. that's right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, like you said, talking about old-time hockey today, which yeah. is, like I said, one of my favorite topics. And a while back, we did a little segment called the Zamboni Time Machine. It was part of the... Uh, I think it was episode 40 when we did this particular one. It was about a epic journey of the Dawson City Nuggets in 1905. They traveled all the way from Dawson City in the Klondike, the Yukon, all the way to Ottawa to play I, for the I Stanley Cup. I remember that episode. Remember yeah. that? It yeah, was, I do. It was at an absolutely incredible journey and nothing like you would think of today's, by today's standards anyways. Anyways, that story was inspired by a book that I had read called Klondikers, Dawson City Stanley Cup Challenge and How a Nation Fell in Love with Hockey. And I am so excited to announce that today we had the author of that book with us, Mr. Tim Falconer. Tim, how are you? I'm great, Scott. How are you? Doing fantastic. I'm, I'm so glad you're here because, like I said, this is, this is just a, a, such a fascinating story. And just on the surface of it alone, the story itself for the trip is great. But the backstory behind it is just as fascinating. So, obviously, you did a lot of research going into this book. Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, how your research came about. Uh, well, I've, I've been a writer my whole career and started out in magazines and then did a bunch of books. And after I finished one called Bad Singer about the science of music, uh, my editor said, what's next? I said, I have no idea. <laughs> and she said, well, it should be something you're passionate about because, you know, you're passionate about music. And that's why she liked Bad Singer. So I said, well, I'm passionate about hockey and the Yukon. And um, and I mentioned the Dawson City Challenge. And she said, well, that sounds good. And I didn't think it was a very good idea. And then about eight months later, I emailed her and said, do you still think it's a good idea? Uh, so then I started you know, doing research. He said, well, see if there's enough research to make it work. And I got to the point where I had too much to give up, but not enough to keep going. Uh, I had enough for maybe half a book, a third of a book. Uh, they're just, I, I naively thought that there would be letters and the diaries of the players and whatnot. Of course, if there had been, someone else would have written this book. Um, and then I read about uh, in 1896 when they started to do play-by-play uh, -play play of games by Telegram. Mm -hmm. And as soon as I read that, I was like, ah, I know how to do this book. So I really tell the story of the early days of hockey uh, and uh, how how Canada fell in love with hockey because I know most of your listeners are American, but uh, in, in Canada, it, it is about a dozen years from when Stanley donated the cup to, I mean, I could have said shorter than 12 years, but I, I think the Dawson Challenge really showed 
how crazy the country was for for hockey that even a good way the ending they they get blown out by Ottawa on the ice uh you know it didn't hurt the game like the game just got more and more popular and uh, you know it, 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 to me it just sort of said okay this when this series happened it's like yeah Canada loves hockey oh absolutely and you know in reading the book, and like I'm telling you, I, I've said it before, and I, I know I'm kind of gushing here, but this is just a, a fantastic <laughs> book. If you are a fan of how early history, any sport really, but especially with this one with hockey, this is the book to read. Because it's funny, the sport of hockey in Canada actually ran parallel with the development of baseball in the States. Because in reading the book, and I don't want to give too much away out of the book because obviously we want people to buy it, which, by the way, here's what the cover looks like Uh and you can you can find this book everywhere, Amazon, Barnes and Noble. We'll talk about that later on too. But anyways, uh, it started off as a basically an amateur club sport, which is exactly how baseball started here in the states. And prior to I think it was 1926, they really were trying to keep the professional element out of the game. And so, Lord Stanley, who was the Governor General of Canada in 1893, correct? And the governor general is basically the equivalent of what would be the prime minister in Canada today, uh, present in the no. no? The, okay. the governor general is the queen's representative. Okay. So bizarrely, the queen of England is also the queen of Canada. Right. But obviously, she doesn't spend much time in Canada. So there's a governor general. So okay. it's, a, it's it's an honorary title. It's not elected like the prime minister. Oh, okay. Okay. Um, so there isn't really an equivalent in in the states, um, but yeah, he was British and he really believed in amateurism and he wanted to support that. And I mean, he totally fell in love with hockey. Um, I mean, he he first time he saw it in eighteen eighty nine, just fell in love with the the sport. And his sons played, and um, so yeah, he he wanted to support the game. And once he did. In Canada, it was such a monarchy-obsessed country. It was sort of like the good housekeeping seal of approval. And sure. Sort of like, well, the governor general says we should love this game, so we do. <laughs> <laughs> Stamp, here you go. <laughs> yeah, because, I mean, that was when hockey was first developing. That started basically in Ontario and Montreal, correct, where the, the main amateur teams were out of Montreal, yeah, Montreal was the re- – it was Montreal, Ottawa, and Quebec City. Mm-hmm. And Toronto really only started about 1890. Right. So Toronto was a little late. I mean, Montreal and Ottawa have advanced. They're a little bit further north. So the the seasons where you can get natural ice uh, – and there, there wasn't artificial ice in Canada for a long time. There wasn't a couple places in the States. Um and and so Toronto had that disadvantage, but they also were even more obsessed with amateurism uh, than the rest of the country. So Montreal was really important uh, in the development of hockey. Yeah. And then Winnipeg uh, became really important. Toronto never won the cup until 1914. Really? That long, huh? Wow, I, I didn't realize it was that long. And now it's like the hockey headquarters of the world. But, uh, yeah, well, Toronto hasn't been the cup since 1960. <laughs> well, <laughs> but, you know, speaking of those old rinks, I mean, I think it's it's interesting to know. You said there was – obviously there was no artificial ice. That wasn't even invented yet. So a lot of those old rinks were open-air rinks. They, they, they were all natural ice. Um, there were there was an artificial rink in Pittsburgh. Mm-hmm. Uh and I think then in Upper Upper Michigan, um, when they they built that, we can talk about the, the leagues in the states. But um, yeah, so I mean, lots of the games, particularly if they were played in March, there was like a, an inch of water on the ice um, uh, because it, it was just so mild. Um, well, you needed an oar instead of a stick, huh? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, some of the newspaper coverage of, of, of some of those games, uh, you know, saying, well, you know, there's a rumor that there was some ice underneath all that water, but 
But you, yeah, because you're you're right. In those early days too, there was there wasn't a lot of like standardized as far as the rules, size of the ranks, or or anything like that. Some of them had square corners, if I'm not mistaken, from what I was reading. Square uh, and in terms of not standardized rules, um, like there were no standardized standardized penalties, mm-hmm. so the referees at the beginning could send you away for thirty seconds or three minutes or the whole game, uh, whatever he wanted. Um, <laughs> So it was not like, okay, there's two or five, that's it, you know. Um, and uh, the size of the rinks was was different from place to place. Um, although the Victoria rink had pretty close to what's normal now. And then the, the um, Montreal Arena, mm-hmm. when it was built in 1899, uh, that set the standard. Uh, that the NHL still uses today at 200 by 85. Okay, okay. And, you know, you mentioned the, the referees because in those early days, that was really a big deal as to who the referees were going to be for these games uh, because both teams had to agree on them, if, if I read that correctly. Yeah, and, well, it was often a, a player. It wasn't like a someone who specialized in refereeing usually. It was usually a player from another team. And uh, so in Montreal, it was – not too big a problem to get somebody they could all agree on. But when Winnipeg and Montreal would play, it was like, well, Winnipeg didn't want a Montreal ref and Winnipeg and Montreal didn't want a Winnipeg ref. Um, so sometimes they would get an Ottawa ref. Uh, but uh, it was also kind of a dangerous job to be ref. <laughs> because um, They would throw stuff at you, including a lot of uh, empty flasks. Uh, <laughs> I like that. <laughs> they, they were empty. <laughs> well, there's that. Yeah. And this is before helmets. So. <laughs> this is before helmets, yeah. <laughs> you, would, uh, you mentioned Winnipeg, and actually Winnipeg played a pretty important role in the growth of the game in Canada um, because at the time when, when Lord Stanley donated the cup and for a few years after that, well, like we had said, it was basically had just stayed in Montreal, Ottawa, Quebec City, and there was there was teams from those three cities kind of battling it out. Uh, Winnipeg comes along, and I think it was nineteen oh no, not quite that, but eighteen eighteen ninety six. Uh, thank you, thank you. <laughs> and they challenged for the cup, and they would eventually win it. Now, explain the process of how a team went through to, to challenge for the cup because it's nothing like it was like it is nowadays. Right. So. Um uh, Stanley donated it as a challenge cup. In fact, it, it, nowhere on the cup does it say the Stanley Cup. It says the Dominion Hockey Challenge Cup. Okay. Uh, and and P.D. Ross, the newspaper publisher and hockey player who became one of the two trustees, his first rule when he sat down to write the rules, before he'd even seen the cup, uh, was t- it'll be called the Stanley Cup. So... Um, what a team! So, in the original rules, it was teams from Ottawa, from Ontario, and Quebec. But he left it open if somewhere else in Canada developed good hockey that they could challenge. Well, three years later, uh, Winnipeg challenged, um, and they came to Montreal uh, Valentine's Day. So it was the Winnipeg Victorias. They were, they challenged the Montreal Victoria, the, the the current Cup champions, and they played in the Victoria rink. So that shows you how much Canada liked Queen Victoria. <laughs> Jeez. So Winnipeg stuns Montreal, wins the Cup. Take it. They take it back to uh, Winnipeg. Um, they hold the first Stanley Cup parade there. They pass. They they fill the cup with champagne and. Uh, drink from it. It's probably the first time anyone had done that. Now it was just the top, the just right. The, the <laughs> All the other stuff has been added. And um, Montreal doesn't like this. <laughs> so they, they challenge Winnipeg, uh, and they go back the end of December of 1896. So the the, the game um, in in. Montreal, uh, Valentine's Day, the telegraph companies set up 
bulletins basically major events like scoring and, and, and you know, when there was a goal or an injury stoppage or whatever. But for the game in December, they set it up. They had a, a knowledgeable hockey person who sat beside the telegraph operator in the rink, and they did play-by-play. And this wow. became a normal a normal thing. It had been done in other sports. It had been done in boxing. It might have been done in baseball. I'm not sure. But this became a, a thing. And, and, you know, for two for people in two different cities and two different provinces to be able to experience the sport at the same time was really quite remarkable. This is 130 years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so people would get together in hotel lobbies or outside telegraph offices or outside newspaper offices and someone would read each telegraph you know so and so gets the puck so and so takes the puck down there so and so shoots um and and then often the newspapers would would um, reprint all the telegrams the next day so if you hadn't seen the game you could get a pretty good sense of how it went the first box scores that's that's uh that's really interesting because like I say, we keep drawing parallels here to what was going on in the States with baseball, and that's what they were doing during the World Series at that time, too. Uh, people would gather, in, especially in the big cities, they would gather at hmm. meet, like uh, saloons, hotels, or whatever, and each play would come over the wire and it would be read out, just, just like you described. So was there anything going on as far as organized hockey in the States at this time? Yes. Um, so there was the Western Pennsylvania Hockey League, which was – uh, based in Pittsburgh, uh, where there was a rink, uh, I may be saying this wrong, Duquesne Gardens, mm-hmm. or Duquesne Garden, um, uh, and it had artificial ice, I believe. So they had four teams that played, and so they they played out of there. And before that, ice polo had been really popular in Pittsburgh, which is surprising. Um, but uh, hockey took off, and then. Um, really important development of hockey and it was going on in other states, you know, New England and and, in New York as well, but upper uh, peninsula of Michigan. Uh, So a guy from Ontario named Jack Gibson, uh, who had been suspended from the OHA because his team was suspended for I mean, they were suspending teams all the time, but somebody took money or someone did something, you know. And um, he he decided to go down to Detroit to study dentistry. And then he had gone and while at, at, at college, he had gone up to play some games in um, the Upper Peninsula where there was a big mining boom uh, going on at the time. And he decided to set up his dentistry practice there. Um, and he had sort of given, like he was devoted to his dentistry and he gave up playing hockey and he he was a big guy, good, fast player, really good player. But I guess in his, uh, waiting room, he had kept a a scrapbook and there were all these articles about what a great hockey player he was and stuff. And some young reporter from the local newspaper saw that and said, Oh, can I interview you? So once the interview uh, appeared, all of a sudden there was this great interest in starting a, a hockey team and a hockey league. So there was there was a, a bunch of teams um, in Upper Portage Lakes, uh, Houghton, I think it's called, and Calumet, and like a bunch of a bunch of teams started, um, and then they started the International Hockey uh, League. Um, was it, it was going to be called something else. And then, so there was a team in Sault Ste. Marie, Michigan, and also a team in Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario. So once the team in Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario started, they called the International Hockey League, mm-hmm. and it was professional. Oh, okay. And it was, um, so meanwhile in Canada, the, the hockey bosses are really fighting professionalism. So all these Canadian players are going down to get lots of money to play in Michigan. And that was sort of like the, the days were numbered for amateurism um, anyway, but that league really put an end to it because the fans didn't like that um, the you know their local boys were were leaving to go play hockey in the states for money, and they just wanted 
to see the best hockey. Sure, right? absolutely, right? <laughs> I mean, the arguments of you know in favor of amateurism was like a, a bunch of elitists arguing about this. The you know the average working guy didn't care. He just wanted his see good hockey and his team to win. Sure. Um, so then they what they did in Kansas they said, okay, well we'll allow professionalism, but you have to teams had to declare who was professional and who wasn't. And then eventually, you know, everyone became right. professional. <laughs> yeah, because who who's going to play for free when the guy next to him is getting paid whatever, right? So yeah, right. yeah, that, that can tend to can, tend to put a little damper on things, I guess. But <laughs> so this is all obviously in the first part of the 20th century, and Michigan, of course, is actually it wasn't really the frontier, but the West was still in the in, in the final stages of being settled, shall we say? And in the meantime. There's this little thing called the Klondike Gold Rush, because gold was found in the Klondike, which obviously there was a lot of people that were looking to to get rich and started migrating that way. What year was that the the gold strike? Do you recall or? Well, the the actual strike was 1896. Okay, uh, but it sort of took long time for the news to get out. <laughs> <laughs> so, in 1897. Uh, two ships left the Yukon with uh, a lot of guys who had made a lot of money, so a lot of guys with gold. One went to uh, San Francisco, one went to Portland, or one went to Seattle. Uh, anyway, two to West Coast cities. And, I think you know, it's one thing to read in the paper, like, oh, there's a gold rush. But there's another when you see people with gold. And uh, this just started every it was just insane like there's one story about a guy who was driving a tram and he just stopped walked off the job and went up to the (laughs) (laughs) get there y'all can walk home (laughs) real rush was 1898 two years after the so the summer of 1898 was what we talk about is the klondike gold rush because that's how long it took everyone to get there they had left a year earlier um, and you know, they had to take a boat up to Alaska. Well, there were other routes, but the one most people took was to take a boat up to Alaska and then climb either the Chilkoot or the White Pass, then build a boat and uh, uh, go down the uh, uh, Yukon River to, to Dawson. Yeah, because there was really no easy way to get there. There was no easy way to get there. Build, yeah. build a boat. <laughs> like even there was the so-called rich man's route, which went all the way up the coast and around uh, Alaska and then uh, came up uh, came up the, the Yukon River. But all the people who left on that didn't leave in time to make it uh, up the river before it frees up. So only a handful of people uh, who went that route made it in 1897 because um, and they had to walk or, or, you know, find another way from once once the, the ships got iced in. Yeah, because much, much different from the California gold rush where you didn't have that kind of weather to deal with. If you get if you didn't get out of there in time up in the Yukon, like you just said, when freeze up hits, you're done for the winter. That's it. You're not going anywhere. Well, you know. Jack London, who you know everyone knows, you know his his yep. uh, books yeah, about the Yukon. He uh, got about halfway down the Yukon River to Dawson, and then spent the winter um, near the Stewart River uh, in a cabin, and, and then in the spring made it all the way to Dawson, and didn't didn't spend that long in Dawson, but spent long enough to get a, a lot of good stories to write some great books. I guess so. He did too. That's for sure. You know, we're going to put a map up from the book, Klondikers, here, because I want just to kind of give a perspective as to where we're talking about. And I know it's it's kind of hard to see, but if you Especially look, if you're on a podcast. Yeah, right? Well, if, 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 if you're, you're watching listening. on YouTube, you can see it. If not, <laughs> I'll describe it for you. Uh, where Alaska is, if you draw basically a line through the middle of Alaska heading back towards Canada, that's approximately where the Yukon is and where the... Subject of our next uh, story here, Dawson. Well, it's Dawson City, correct? Yeah. Okay. Dawson City uh, is, and there's also Whitehorse there. So 1904 comes around. Dawson City is starting to boom because of the gold, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken. 
Um, well, no. See, by 1904, it's getting smaller. Okay. So 1898, it's about 30,000 people. And by 18, 1899, they're starting to leave. They've, they've gone on. There are other um, gold rushers, one in Nome, Alaska, and, you know, um, also, most of the people who made there in 1890, like th- all the claims were staked. Um, you know, most people who went there didn't find any gold. If they did, they found, found only a little. Or if they found a lot, they spent their money gambling. <laughs> and drinking. Um, uh, so, you know, very few people made their fortune there. But anyway, so the population was declining. Um, and by 1904, by, by 1901, it was below 10,000. Uh, and it was continuing to to drop to to 1904. Uh, okay, so I, 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 I guess I should have reworded that. Uh, it was it would more or less it wasn't like the Wild West anymore. It had kind of become no, more calm down. One wild summer, right? And, and then it became very, shall I say, civilized. <laughs> <laughs> but it, you know, like uh, in 1902, they built uh, a athletic center with the uh, only. Uh, indoor rink west of Winnipeg. Uh, they had electric power in the late 1890s for, because of the mines. Um, so even though it was a town on the, you know, at the end of the road, well, there were no roads, like at the far corners of the earth, um, they had all the amenities or most of the amenities of a Southern city. I, I said, you know, it, it's really close to Alaska and um, a lot of Americans considered it part of the States. Um, and in fact, the population of Dawson was uh, majority well, you know, well more than a half of the population was American. OK, yeah, uh, because there was American companies doing business there, too, as well. Oh, yeah. yeah. And, and as I say, most of the most of the people who I mean, they came from all over the world and they came from all over North America. But the majority of the people came from the West Coast, um, which was. You know, a little easier. I mean, I guess if you were from, uh, you know, upstate New York, you could take the train across and and, and then go up. But um, it's just, the population was largely American. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. So all the hockey players were Canadian. Yes, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> on, the, on the team that, that challenged for the cup. Then. <laughs> so with the relatively quick growth then, and then obviously, like you said, the population declined, but every – Everything seemed to be starting to fall into place for Dawson City. How did they go about issuing a challenge for the Stanley Cup? Because up until that point, it was largely a, a Midwestern to an Eastern uh, yeah. kind of thing. So how does Dawson City make the challenge, and how does it get accepted? Well, it, you know, interesting. So uh, a guy named Weldy Young, who was a star for Ottawa, and was at the banquet uh, for the Ottawa Hockey Club. He was... 20 at the time and already a veteran. He started when he was 17 playing for them. He was at the banquet at the end of 1892 uh, when the team has gone undefeated where Lord Stanley's aide-de-camp read a letter saying, I want to donate a trophy. So he he was there at the beginning of the trophy and he always wanted to win it. But he goes to uh, Dawson City in 1899. And it, as early as 1900, he wrote a letter home saying that Dawson was going to challenge for the cup. In 1901, they officially did challenge for the cup, but then nothing ever came of it. Uh, Winnipeg was cup champions at the time, and the trustees said, you know, send us some dates. And then, I don't know, maybe it got lost in the mail. I don't know what happened. Nothing happened. Then in uh, 1904, they issued a challenge. Um, now, there was a four-team league in Dawson. I mean, there was lots of other hockey. I mean, there were... There's women's hockey, and there were like the doctors would play the lawyers. They were sure. so called Batman's game where every player was over 215 pounds. <laughs> um, but in 1904, you know, the senior league said, We're going to do a, 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 an all center all star team. And uh, Ottawa's the holder and the trustees, they agreed to this. Now, I'm not. Sure. Why? Um, because everyone must have known that uh, they weren't really in the same league, uh, literally as uh, literally and figuratively as Ottawa. Um, I think 
there was a lot of uh, PR challenges. The game was growing really quickly, but there was the the fight over professionalism, which and and all the players moving to the states to play in for money in Upper Michigan, and um, all the violence in the sport. Violence is a controversial part of hockey from the very very beginning, and so I think the trustees said okay, we should do this as a PR move. Like it'll sell out the rink for sure. It'll be really popular. Um, and I'm, and the fact that Weldy Young was on the team may have had a, a factor because he was really popular in Ottawa. So it was probably not the right thing to do, but they, they approved the challenge. Okay. Okay. And at that time too, uh, if you challenged for the Stanley Cup, you had to go to the champion city. There was no such thing as like what we have nowadays where, you know, two games at home, two games on the road. There, there was none of that. No, nope. <laughs> <laughs> I could, I couldn't imagine this road trip going back and forth. That's for sure. <laughs> well, that was one of the big concerns that if if uh, Dawson won, they take the cup back to the Yukon, and then no one would have. Everyone said it's not worth it to go there to challenge for it. Yeah, they okay. Come up with a trophy. That that makes sense too. That that really does. Mm-hmm. But fortunately, for this story's sake, they did accept the challenge, and everything was all set to go. I believe they were going to, the games were scheduled for January of 1905. Yep. But because of the distance involved, uh, they had to leave Dawson in December of uh, 1904. That's right. They had quite a journey. So they thought it would take them 18 days. The first part, um, now you hear a lot of stories that they took dog sleds. This isn't true. Uh, half of them left on foot on the 18th of December. Uh, three of them left on, on foot on the 18th. Four of them left on bikes the next day. Now, when you say bikes, so you're talking bicycles. Bicycles, yeah. Imagine. Uh, and they had to go uh, 330 miles to uh, uh, Whitehorse mm-hmm. along a, it was called the Overland Trail. But it was, well, let's put it this way. No car made it down there until 1912. Wow. This was a brush. This was, a, this was for horse carriages and sleighs. <clears throat> so wow. they, all the bikes broke down, but they made it to uh, Whitehorse in nine days. So that, that was good. By this point, there was a, uh, a narrow gauge train that ran from Whitehorse to Skagway, Alaska, uh, which was only, I don't know, 110 miles or something. But there was a massive snowstorm and there were snow slides that stopped the train. So they were stuck in Whitehorse. They uh, wired the captain of the ship they were supposed to take and said, wait for us. It waited 24 hours and then took off two hours before their train arrived in Skagway. (laughs) (laughs) So then they're stuck in Skagway, Alaska. There's there's a rink there, but it's uh, half sand, half ice. Dulled their skates, so that was no good. They did dive in the Skagway River every morning, which would have been really cold. (laughs) Oh, jeez. You know, and, speaking uh, of which, what during December up in the Yukon, about what's the average temperature about? Any idea? Average temperature, I think, it's like minus twenty-two. Oof. But it often was down to minus forty or below that. Oh, right? and they're doing this on foot. And they oh, walked. Yeah, they're doing this on foot. Oh and, man! And at night, they're 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 sleeping at roadhouses. There's at least one night they stayed in a tent with a bunch of miners, and oh. it was so cool they just sat up because they couldn't sleep. <laughs> so anyway, they're they're in Skagway, um, and they're supposed to be in training, right? Like they they have to be fit for their to take on Ottawa, but the local athletics, the Elks and the athletic club, uh, are very good hosts in Skagway. So the rumor was uh, they were in serious liver training in Skagway. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and then on New Year's Eve, they finally get a, on a ship. Uh, but instead of going to Vancouver, uh, as their original ship was supposed to, this is an American ship, so it goes to um, Seattle. And uh, then they take a tram to, to Vancouver and then a train across. So they had a, 
hope to arrive a week before the first game. They arrive 48 hours before the first game. And you can imagine oh. not having been on ice for three and a half weeks. And God. they're not in great shape. Oh, they had to have been absolutely exhausted. And exhausted. One of the players said, you know, like he, in his dreams when he was sleeping, he, he was still dreaming of walking through the snow. <laughs> <laughs> My goodness. My goodness. Uh, so uh, they have a couple of practices, and um, they play their first game. They're very optimistic. <clears throat> now, their best player, Weldy Young, has not made it on the journey because he, because of his job, he couldn't get away. He said, you guys go ahead. I'll catch up. He doesn't catch up in time for the first game. Mm. They lose the they lose nine two, and uh, but you know they the first twenty minutes, Dawson looked pretty good, uh, and then Ottawa started to skate away from them. Now Ottawa was a great team, but they also had the best player in hockey, hockey's first superstar, one eyed Frank McGee, <laughs> and he had scored one goal in the game. Uh, at the bar afterwards, someone overheard the probably the, it was probably the manager of the Dawson team, Joe Boyle, who's quite a character in himself. Um, but apparently, he said, "Well, this McGee's not such a big deal. Uh, he's not such a great scorer." So this got back to McGee, and the next game he scored fourteen goals. <laughs> 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 Twenty-three to two. Uh, he eight goals in a row. Jeez, uh, the original what, locker room board, locker board material. What, what was the yeah, final but, score on that one? What did you say? I missed it. Twenty-three to two. Twenty-three to two. Jeez, <laughs> and he scored fourteen goals. <laughs> so let me ask you, Tim. Uh, one-eyed Frank McGee. Did he get his nickname for obvious reasons? He had uh, twice playing hockey injured his eye. Um. He, he had two eyes. Uh, he wasn't completely blind, uh, but he, he had impaired vision. I don't know. See, it's unclear how much uh, vision he had in his bad eye. He did make it into the army. He got killed in the First World War in France. Um, and there's, you know, there's stories about how he tricked the doctor who was testing his eye with that's I don't, I don't, anyway, he somehow. <laughs> they were taking anybody, or, come on. <laughs> but he, he, he definitely had a damaged eye, which is why he was called One-Eyed Frank McGee. And, and in fact, you know, he didn't, he should have started playing for Ottawa when he was 18. He didn't start till he was about 21 because of this eye thing. Okay. okay. You, you know, Barry is dissing on me here. He wanted to know if I was in goal for those uh, 23 scored points. Were you? <laughs> I tell you what, there would have been 23 if I was in goal. You know what? I, uh, I got to say that. So the, the goalie on the Dawson team was a guy who had only played goal a couple times before that. He was a he was a really good skater. He'd won all sorts of speed skating um championships in the Yukon and he was a really good hockey player but the only position available um was goal because the regular goalie uh, you know the best goalie in the league was the gold commissioner so he couldn't leave for a few months so this 18 year old well he turned 19 just before the the series but he was 18 when he was picked you know what and I find amazing was, is that well he actually the caught up player on the ice for Dawson <laughs> <laughs> like all the papers said if if it hadn't been for him, it would have been worse. Oh, geez. Well, you know what the the funniest part is that that Weldy caught up to him for the second game. You said, and it was even worse in the first game. No, no, he he oh. Weldy caught up for the tour afterwards. Oh, I thought you meant he caught up for game two. No. Okay. So, uh, so after the series, they uh, did a tour of um, of the Maritimes and then Quebec, Ottawa. They went down to Pittsburgh, um, and. Weldy joined them for that, uh, although halfway through he bailed out and decided to, he wasn't going back to Yukon and um, uh, stayed in Ottawa. Um, but, what, you know, the, on that the tour, they did pretty well. They won 10 and lost 12. Um, so they were, you know, competitive with most good teams. But, you know, it's sort of like um, 
you know, playing in the Colorado Avalanche. Like they're they're the best team, and they also have Kale McCarr. And, sure, you know, like, sure. You know, they have the superstar, and they have the, the great supporting guys. That that was Ottawa. I mean, even without one-eyed Frank McGee, they were a great team. Well, at that point, they were known as the Ottawa Silver Seven, correct? Okay, here's a, so. so <laughs> I thought Boston team. We people talk about them as the Nuggets. They weren't known as the Nuggets then. That came later. I don't mm-hmm. know where that came from. They talk about the Ottawa Silver Seven. They the newspapers didn't call them that at the time. This was later on. I know where that story came from. So, the manager of the team owned a drugstore in Ottawa, but he also owned shares in some cobalt, uh, some silver mines in Cobalt, Ontario. There had been a big silver boom in 1903. And so he gave each of the players uh, silver nuggets. And when he was doing that, one of the players turned the other another and said, we should call ourselves the Silver Seven. But um, at the time, like there were maybe two or three references to the Silver Seven in newspapers. Mm-hmm. This came later. Um, so that was one of the things about this book was I found out the names of the teams that we all think they were called wrong. People thought they took uh, dog sleds. They didn't, although I figured out for the longest time, I, it, I couldn't figure out, well, where did this come from? And then I read an article that said that miners referred to a long walk as a mush. And so they had must I a long walk from Dawson to Whitehorse. And I think people in Nice said, oh, mush. That means they took dog sleds. And gotcha. So, gotcha. That's how that uh, confusion got started. Well, see, with the uh, with the Ottawa Silver Sun, what I was kind of driving at was at that time, in that particular well, era, the game was a lot different itself because there were more players on the ice. There were seven players, yes. Right. Yeah, they're, they're, <laughs> they're, they're, the game has changed a lot. Um since it, although you know, someone once asked me, "Well, like, oh, would, would you recognize it?" Well, yeah, you'd recognize it as hockey. It was different. There were um, seven players, so there were the three forwards, then there was the rover, and then there was the the two defensemen lined up one in front of the other. There was the point who, in the very beginning, was like a second goaltender, and then the cover point who became more of a rushing defenseman o- over time. Um, and I know you're. Scott, I know you're a big fan of old rinks, so I'll tell you a bit about the uh, the original rinks. So they didn't have boards. So like the Victoria rink in Montreal had a, like a foot high, um, you know, it's basically a board, and then there was the the standing room area. Wow. Oh. So it was more or less a railing. That'd be rough on your legs. And there was no railing. So what would happen is if it was really crowded – people would get sort of pushed out on the ice. <laughs> and so there was one game where they had to, the ref had to stop the game so that uh, the people who had been pushed on the ice could, you know, fight their way back into the crowd. <laughs> um, we talked about the natural ice, so there were a lot of slush often. Unless, you know, you had a cold spell, then the ice was great. Mm-hmm. Um, the rinks were really, really smoky. Like, everybody was smoking. And so there was, like, this cloud of smoke uh, hanging over th- over everything they they were dark and you know there were there was lighting but it was dingy um right and uh so it for the fans it was a bit of a different experience now when the montreal arena gets built in 1899 that's the first venue that's designed for hockey like all the other rinks were were designed for skating they were skating rinks. And that, and so the Montreal Arena, even the name was important because all the other rinks have been called rinks. Um, and it was built with the paying customer in mind. And it had 4,000 seats and standing room area. And you could um, rent a blanket for 10 cents and there were refreshment areas. So like all of a sudden by 1899, they started to say, we could make some money off this. Um, and, and, and they did. <laughs> <laughs> and that was the end yeah. of, yeah. Well, uh, hey, much like today, that's what it's all about for sports. Yeah. Make that money. Right. Uh, yeah. Because you said in the book too, that there was no forward passing to, to you know, prevent offsides, which 
had to make the game tremendously different. I mean, that, if you really think about that. Yeah, so initially it was a, a lot of individual efforts, let's call it. <laughs> so it wasn't, um, you know, there wasn't a lot of passing because you couldn't pass forward. Um, and so they just didn't pass that much. And, and initially the defensemen were both stay-at-home defensemen. So uh, then they started to develop what they call combination plays, or what we would call passing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and they would go down the ice three or four abreast. So the three forwards were three forwards and the rover would go down the ice and pass the puck back and forth laterally. Um, in 1899, the uh, Montreal Shamrocks win the cup and they played what they called scientific hockey which you or I would just call strategic hockey. Sure. Scientific was a big buzzword at the time. In in the business world, everything was, you know, scientific. <laughs> so they called it scientific hockey. And it was basically just more emphasis on combination plays, passing. Sure. Uh, and more positional play, playing as a, uh, as a unit. Um, so the game was, it really developed uh, quickly in terms of, skill uh and players ability um you know it started off as a bunch of rich guys would play occasionally and then it became something that people aspired to do and and the the fans expected them to train and to practice and to play games and and um uh so it, it 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 that was one of the problems for the dawson uh, team is they hadn't realized how much the game had changed. You know, Weldy Young had left in 1899. Well, between 1899 and 1905, the game had changed so much and got so much better. And what they found was, and also the rounded corners came in and they were using, oh, and boards came in and they were using the boards for passing plays right. and, and not. And so the Dawson players were like, oh, we don't know what's going on here. <laughs> It's funny because you talked about that in the book too, about how in the beginning it really hockey was more or less like an elitist sport because okay. you you had to have money to be in these these athletic clubs, so to speak, yeah. and that's where it was all born out of. But as the game grew and grew, and and especially with Lord Stanley donating the cup, that really started you know the interest in the sport to you know go through every part of society, which. Again, much like in the States with baseball, it just explodes right across the, the entire scene. So the Dawson City team makes it all the way back. They played the, the games all the way back to Dawson City. What happened to them afterwards? Well, not all of them went back. First of all, only five of them went back. Uh, Weldy Young, one of the ones who stayed. Um, one of them stayed in the – well, a couple of them stayed in the Yukon the rest of their lives. The young goalie went back for a while, and then he went to BC. And um, uh, yeah, I mean, none of them. I mean, they some of them distinguished themselves in uh, in Yukon history, I guess. Uh, but this was probably the highlight of of their of their life, I bet. <laughs> <laughs> for most of them, I mean, Weldy Young actually went on to be a really successful mining executive. Uh, right now, I'm writing a book about a 1964 uh, mining uh, scandal and uh, looking at sort of the roots of Canadian mining. And Weldy Young was uh, like in 1910, 11. He he makes some really good mining deals. Like he buys some claims for like 125 bucks and sells them for 300,000. And he yes. ends up being a mining executive in Toronto until his death in 1940s. Well, he certainly did very well for himself, that's for sure. Um, but the basically the hockey scene in Dawson, that was kind of the, the peak of everything. It sort of declined after that? Yeah, I mean, they, they're still a league. Uh, I know people in Dawson who still play. Um, oh, I meant as far as, like, you know, challenging for the Stanley Cup. There were no further oh, yeah. challenges. No, no, they, they talked big about how they were going to um, – you know, challenge again, and they would come back. And they'd be better prepared, better prepared, and whatnot. But no, I mean, it was very expensive trip, sure. and um, and and you know, it's just they also got blown out so badly. I don't think 
I, you know, the, the thing is, when they were coming and they were unknown, the rinks could sell lots of tickets. You know, uh, it was in Ottawa. It was, you know, the rink was full and there was lots of excitement. Um, but they came back. It wasn't going to be <clears throat> quite the same. Right, right. Wow. That's, but like I said, just the, the sheer volume of what they had to go through to, to get there is you know, for us, it's easy to imagine now because you know, with the advent of air travel, you know, you can be pretty much anywhere you want to be on the North American continent within hours, if you, if you think about it. But the, what they had to go through, I mean, you're talking three weeks of, of grueling travel, too. It's not like they were living the lap of luxury or anything like that on the way. Walk 330 miles. <laughs> and yeah, 20 I, below zero weather. Yeah, no, no thanks. Not me. <laughs> but, uh, no, yeah, it's, it, it's incredible. It's, it's really amazing. Oh. I mean, even if the weather had been good, they were they were traveling what forty miles a day. Yeah, yeah. Is, you know, carrying that's a, your that's a pace. Gear. No, they didn't. They only took their skates, um, and they got new gear in, in Ottawa. But they, you know, some clothes and some food and some skates. They had to carry that on their back. Forty k a day is a good a good hike. And then the weather. Yeah. No. <laughs> And you said they did it without dog sleds, which is, yeah. you know, a primary form of travel when you have to, you know, when there's a lot to be transported. But Well, and the thing is, you know, they could have taken um, a carriage, uh, you know, a, a horse-drawn buggy or a sleigh. There were, there were regular um, things, and they would have taken about five days. It kind of depended on the weather and whatnot. It could be three days to ten days at the most. Um but it was going to cost 125 bucks a guy. So that would have added a thousand bucks to the cost of the trip. And I, so even months before the, um, the, the trip, uh, Weldy Young was saying, well, we're, you know, writing letters and we're going to, we're going to walk. It'll keep us fit. Um, and then as it turned out, there, there wasn't enough snow for dog sleds anyway. Uh, it had been, uh, kind of a mild winter. I mean, mild by Yukon standards. Yeah. And there hadn't been, uh, there hadn't been a lot of snow. So, uh, no dog sleds. Yeah. For us, when we're down here going, Oh my God, it's freezing. They're going, man, is it hot out here? Oh my God. What's <laughs> yeah. going and and when you said $125 a day, you know, I mean, if you think about it, that's no, 1905 no, money for the whole trip man. or yeah, for the trip. I mean, but that's, that's 1905 money. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, it's you know, today, money. today yeah. that's all, well, you know, $2 billion. <laughs> I'll tell you, it's got to be in the thousands. Yeah, really. I mean, if you if you really stop and think about that for a second. Yep. But speaking of modern times, they did recreate this trip, didn't they? Yeah, about twenty five years ago, um, a bunch of hockey players from um, from Dawson recreated it, and they uh, played the Ottawa alumni uh, uh, and in Ottawa and they, some of them took dog sleds, some of them took sn- snowmobiles. Some of them, I think took a bus. Um, <laughs> and, uh, they didn't recreate yeah, it like, then. There was no walking. Was there? Yeah. <laughs> no, I don't think any, well, there is a movie about it. Uh, so maybe somebody walked, but I think if everyone's taking s- uh, snowmobiles and dog sleds, if you walked, you might be behind the others. I don't know. Yeah, anyway, I would imagine. They, they recreated it to the extent that they could. and um, uh, They had, from what I gather, they had a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, let's see, Ottawa won those games too, didn't they? I believe so, yeah. I think so, yeah. But it still, may have only been one game, but yeah. But still, what, a, what an incredible story. And, and like I said, your book does such a fantastic job of, of creating the backstory for it because that was one of the things that when I read it, it, it was, I'm like, Oh, I, I thought it was going to open right up to the, the dot. No, it, it painted the entire picture, which makes it that much more enjoyable because you're so much more knowledgeable about what built up to it rather than just having it tossed right at you. Here it is. No, you know, the backstory and you, and it's just, it's fascinating. It's a fascinating. Look at the, the early days of hockey and, just how, how different things were is, is absolutely incredible. And, you know, and it, yeah, it was like 120 years ago, which doesn't seem like that long ago in the grand scheme of things, I guess. But Not, not at your age. No, yeah, especially me. Yeah, exactly. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> but, 
But uh, Tim, you got any uh, any other projects in the hopper? Yeah, well, so this it's not about hockey, but it's a it's about, oh, we don't uh, want to know. Lightning <laughs> scandal uh, of 1964 that was a big story here in Canada. So I'm running about that. Excellent, excellent. And maybe uh, maybe someday I'll come go do another hockey story, but I I can't find anything quite as good as the Dawson team. That was quite a quite a story. No, it's it is it, it's absolutely absolutely incredible. And um, yeah, like I said, we, I know you can, like I bought mine at, at Barnes and Noble. I know you can get it on Amazon. Um, anywhere else you want to point out where you can get the book? I think in the States, those are probably the two best places. Um, in Canada, you know, any bookstore will have it. But uh, I, I, I think in the States, uh, Amazon or Barnes and Noble are probably the best too. I mean, unless you have a bookstore that's really good for sports books or something. There you go, right? That's the best kind of bookstore right there, as far as I'm I'm concerned. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, boy. Well, Tim, this has been fantastic, and I I appreciate you taking I mean, we're almost at an hour already, and I'll tell you, I could have kept going for another hour, but uh, (laughs) this has been been fantastic and such a fascinating story, and I, I, I just appreciate you so much coming on and telling us about it. Oh, it was my pleasure. I had a lot of fun. Thanks. Absolutely. And uh, anything, anything else you want to add before we uh, before we go? Uh, well, you you never asked me what my favorite team is. You know, you're right. <laughs> you're absolutely right. I know it's not Toronto because you said that in the beginning. So, Boston. Really, the Bruins? Huh? Really? Now you're you're from Toronto, correct? Yeah. So how'd you become a Bruins fan? Uh, when I was a little. You know, little kid, like six years old, um, signed up. My parents signed me up for the local community uh, league, and all the teams were named after uh, NHL teams. Mm-hmm. And in fact, there was a team called the Montreal Maroons, which shows you how old the league was. Um, and uh, I got put on the Boston Bruins, and uh, I was really bummed out because my best friend uh, was put on the New York Rangers. And so to cheer me up, um, my parents would say, oh, you know, there's a real Boston team in the paper. And so and of course, in those days, this was in the mid 60s, Boston was in last place every year. (laughs) But they were talking about this young guy named Bobby Orr who was coming along. And um, so I I weathered a couple of bad years and then enjoyed the, the good Orr Esposito years and right up to the. The good uh, Patrice Bergeron and Brad Marchand uh, era. Wow, that's yeah, certainly Bobby Orr, for, without a doubt, changed the game forever. And uh, yeah, I bet you're glad to see. It looks like Bergeron's coming back for one more season, huh? Uh, yeah, I hope so. Uh, I mean, he hasn't signed the contract yet. Yeah, I think he will. I think he, he. I think he wants one more one more shot at it. I think. Yeah, I mean, like he won the Celtics, so his game hasn't deteriorated right. too much. Um, but I, I think I hope Boston can avoid the kind of teardown the Blackhawks are doing. Oof, boy! And, you know, with McAvoy and, and Pasternak, you know they've got some good young talent, so maybe they can avoid that. But when Bergeron goes, it's going to hurt. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's you know, and it's it's a, it's great to see him performing at the level he is. You know, in this advanced stage of his career, because. You know, some players can't can't do it for that long, and Patrice certainly has. It's just been incredible to watch. And you're right, this uh, this Chicago teardown's been kind of tough to watch. Yeah. Well, uh, Taves is now kind of going. I don't know if I'm up for this. <laughs> yeah, you see, he's like, uh, you know, I think I've had enough. That's that's quite it. <laughs> <laughs> but he had, he's got three Stanley Cup rings, so I guess he can't complain too much. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, he's had a good career, but. Yeah, well, and unfortunately, this is the the way it is in the salary cap era now too, where you know you, you hit your your peak, but then all of a sudden you you find yourself butted right up against that cap because well, obviously all your players got you what you wanted, got you a good playoff run, and then they want to get paid, and, and yeah. so it goes. But well, it's going to be, I tell you, it's going to be. I can't wait for for hockey to start. My my wife always goes crazy because you're like, you're wishing the summer away. I go, yeah, I am actually, I am. So what? <laughs> Oh boy, but yeah, like I said, Tim, thank you so much for coming on. This has been so much fun. I, I really appreciate it. 
Oh, my, my pleasure. Thanks very much. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, stay in touch, and you're more than welcome to come back on the show anytime you want. Okay, great. Thanks. All righty. That was Tim Falconer. Uh, what a story. This has just been excellent. Well, that's all the time we've got for this week. So for Dave the Save Warner, uh, I'm Scott Kimball. We're signing off. Uh, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, martyslegalstick.com, and, of course, on the Sports History Network. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next week on Marty's Illegal Stick, a hockey history podcast. <laughs> hey there, sports history fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the football history dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. With every race, every qualifying run, and every pit stop, Tim Coffeen would feel the pressure and excitement. With his own podcast on the Sports History Network called Tim Coffeen Talks IndyCar and Racing History... Tim will share those very same racing emotions and memories with his listeners. Learn, laugh, and enjoy the world of IndyCar racing through the eyes of Tim Coffeen. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.